Paul's here with me. <laughs> we're here and, with uh, each other. Yeah. It's kind of fun to say we're here with each other when we, I think we live probably close to 600 miles away. Um, but um, to one of the things that we're interested in talking about tonight is Wendell Berry. And um, Wendell is a huge, uh, has become a huge influence for me. Um, and I think Paul too. Um, Absolutely. Recent yeah. years. Well, through you. In fact, I think you told me about J. Bar Crow, uh, and I, ran, I went and read the novel. And then I've been so I've been reading a little bit. I brought, I'm sure I've not read as much Wendell Berry as you have, but I've read I've uh, uh, just the memory of Old Jack, the the one you just sent me, and several of his novels and poems. I've got a book of his poems, and so yeah, I've come to deeply appreciate him. Um, but, uh, I think that you have, uh, far more in depth understanding of what he's doing. Shall I explain? I, I was, uh, I made a criticism of Barry and yeah, go ahead. And I think this is kind of the basis of our discussion that if you, if you, uh, look at people like uh, Martin Heidegger and uh, Heidegger's picture of, you know, uh, anti, you know, he's kind of in anti-industrialization and talks about returning to the, you know, the blood and soil of, of uh, Germany. So much so that, you know, when he is offered a new job uh, teaching position, he goes and asks his farmer friend, you know, feeling that the rural mindset, you know, in some way contains the truth. But of course, the, the, there is an inherent uh, danger, I think. Sim similar thing happens, I think, in a Japanese uh, context. That is that there is, with the modern nation state, the founding of the modern nation state, and uh, modernity itself, you know, in Japan, then you get at the same time the notion of uh, a return to, uh, you know, a pre-industrial uh, understanding or even, a, you know, uh, the idea. Actually, in Japan, it's the mountain shamans and uh, it's, a, it's almost a religious sentiment. And so the, what you get in... Heidegger, and I think uh, in other places, a kind of fascism, is this mm -hmm. longing of return, a longing to go back, uh, and in some way the idea that the truth or purity is there in a rural, you know, pre-industrial setting. Uh, if you were to state it theologically, maybe the goal of returning to Eden, you know, and I think that that, that impetus to return is itself a, a kind of mistaken notion. So I said all that, and Jason responded <laughs> that I had misunderstood, and I, that's what I'm wanting to hear tonight is for him to lay this out. Well, I think... Um... The, the, that 
that was born out of two conversations. One was your conversation with, um, oh, for some reason the name just left me. Um, he and I have just become friends. Uh, to, or David yeah. David Mosley, yes. Oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> and um, believe it or not, um, I found out he went to Lincoln with my sister. Um, so they had already known each other. Mm-hmm. And you had um, been talking to him about his his work um, with C.S. Lewis and um, J.R.L. Tolkien. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. then you uh, drew some pretty um, – I thought some very thoughtful uh, parallels between Tolkien's um, – Tolkien's idea about the world of the hobbits – and Barry's um, uh, kind of longing for the rural. Uh, yeah, uh, in Port William. Yeah, Hobbiton and Port William, yeah. which I hadn't heard anybody make that analogy yet, although a lot of folks have leveled criticisms of Barry's work. Um, if you're not familiar with Barry, I suppose it's it's helpful to talk about uh, Wendell Berry's books. Uh, Wendell Berry has written many books um, about a fictional town in Kentucky called Port William, and his stories span well over a hundred years of the history of Port William. And it's a small farming community, and what it really sort of tells is the story of the how the farming community has moved from the 19th into the 20th century and, and that, uh, how modernity has changed, uh, the, the, has changed farming and has in, in a lot of ways undone, um, the community that was there. Uh-huh. And, um, I think the parallel and, and, and help me make sure, make sure I'm, I'm saying this properly is the parallel is, um, in, in Tolkien, you've got, uh, I think Tolkien was really upfront about this. He's really, really sort of railing against modernity, um, and, and wanting to sort of glorify this pre-modern England, hmm. um, or at least yeah, Britain. I mean, the the ring in you know the Hobbit and in the the uh, or is it in the uh, in the is in uh, representative Both. in Tolkien's yeah. own explanation of industrialization. Industrialization. I mean, I've heard him explain that outside of the realm of the fiction. Yeah, and so um, <clears throat> and and. You had uh, in one of your recent uh, podcasts that was just published. Um, you had on, on the Plowshares website. You had um, uh, talked about that some length, and um, I wrote to you because we've we've talked a lot about these things. But um, I am reading Barry a little differently than I'm reading Tolkien. I, I personally, I think your criticism of Tolkien is is exactly right. It is this um, 
there's a sort of glorification. Everybody wants to live in Hobbiton. I mean, I, I, I've, I've seen the movies and boy, it looks like the perfect life to me. I mean, there's no, you know, aside from what's going on outside of Hobbiton, there's, uh, I mean, you think that this is a perfect world. There's, um, plenty of, uh, wonderful, um, um, there's, you know, the, the farms and the forests and the, and the homes and nobody really seems to want for anything. So I can see that. I can look at that and say, well, that's a, a, a nice little dream world. Um, but is, if you're assuming that the reality of the past somehow looked like this, well, that's probably wishful thinking. Um, Years years ago, I was after I had moved to Missouri with my my first wife, um, and I'd left Indiana. And I'm from Indiana. That's been you know that's always kind of been home, even though I don't get back very often at all. Um, I realized uh, a couple of years after I'd moved away, and and gone back to visit that that statement you can't go home again. Uh, there's something to it. Um, you can't go home again because what you take to be home doesn't exist anymore after you're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, the idea that you could somehow go back to the way things were. I'm not sure that's possible. Um, even if what you thought was really ever existed the way it does in your imagination. Um, and so I sure. think the, the nostalgia, you know, in Japanese, there's even a, a phrase, you know, Natsukashi, that, that this idea of, of, I think, a nostalgic longing for return uh, is something that we've all experienced at one level or another we kind of idealize either a time a place or a childhood um and of course it it is the picture you know if you think of kierkegaard's uh repetition what he's trying to do there is to repeat his trip to germany you know to he had a wonderful uh, vacation trip to Germany, and he wants to repeat it exactly. But of course, if you think of it in terms of a Freudian perspective, the compulsion to repeat, uh, I think is from the same thing, that it's not, in fact, just a uh, you know beautiful picture of the way things are, but in fact, I think it's integral to the human disease to long for the past and to want to repeat something or perhaps to compulsively repeat something. And of course, there may be a, a, a positive, you know, idea of repetition. So that was, that's sort of all there in, in what I was saying about Barry and uh, the idea that there may be a kind of uh, naivete. And I think I had said something like uh, that, Port William is the the people that are bad aren't even very bad. But then you sent me the memory of old Jack. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what you're saying is, well, actually, the memory of old Jack is the counter to that sort of criticism. 
Yeah, you're not the only one that's actually said that. And I've actually, uh, I invited you some time ago to be involved in a Facebook uh, group about Wendell Berry's writings. And I, it's one of the few Facebook experiences that has had a whole lot of meaning for me just because the folks that tend to be on it um, are, are pretty good at um, at trying to see the, the, the side that I think um, your comments represent um, and also to, to recognize those, but also to recognize Barry for what they read in him. Okay. I, I think I've, I've run across articles that have been shared on that, um, on that wall uh, that have said something similar that have acu- even accused Barry of sort of whitewashing the past. Um, if I was going to be critical of him, I would, I would probably be critical. Uh, I don't think, I don't think he's acknowledged the racism uh, of the time. It, he, he's nodded to it, mm-hmm. um, but hasn't acknowledged it as fully as he might um, of course, keeping in mind that Barry is a very—he's uh, a very progressive, very active. Uh, he's been involved in a lot of activism, but primarily about um, um, issues concerning the environment, um, which is a term he ha- he hates. He hates the term environment. One of Wendell Berry's comments is, "You you can't claim to love something that doesn't have a name." And so for him, places have names and creatures have names and people, of course, have names. You love those places and creatures and name and, and people. Um, uh-huh. But you can't say, I love the environment. The environment is some is a thing that you've divorced from yourself. It's, a, it's something that you objectify and you hold it out here and you so that you can talk about it. Well, that's not something you love. He loves places like Port William, like uh, such and such a river or um, a farm that you get to know because of a relationship that you have with it. Um, so it's a strong, and this is the, I mean, as I was making these criticisms, I was also arguing with myself. I did catch that, yeah. That, that, he has this strong appreciation for place. Yes. And, and I think that that, uh, in other words, I think that can be a very healthy understanding that we need to incorporate even into our view of what, whatever heaven is. Uh, heaven is not a placeless, you know, uh, but rather if we understand that, uh, there are heavenly sorts of places that here on the earth that we would want uh, to to be there, to be preserved, to be a part of uh, uh, God's redemption. And I think that's what you're getting in part in in Barry's uh, appreciation for place. And I don't think you can talk about place. See, what what Mendelberry doesn't separate is the idea of place 
and the other and belonging. Those are wrapped up together. That, and, and this is the thing that I think is separates Barry from uh, just about anybody I know in that when he talks about place, it's not just a piece of property that you own. As a matter of fact, I think that this way of looking at it, that you, you own this property, you use it, you glean its resources, and that's the end of it. Um, and I think that he sees that as sort of a fallenness. What instead you belong to it as much as it belongs to you. And so um, that what he calls membership, uh, you know, we are members of one another and, and we are members of the places we are uh, where we exist, where we live. And that, and so, you know, you see that and you acknowledge that. And that's what, that's what a healthy relationship with the place that you're in entails. So the place takes care of you. I mean, in one of his um, lectures with uh, Wes Jackson from the land Institute, um, he sort of, he sort of says it's a very selfish thing to love your neighbor because you love your neighbor and your neighbor loves you back. (laughs) Um, You love the place you're in. The place loves you back. And I and, and here it, I think is is where I take exception to the criticism of Wendell Berry that sort of lumps his statements in, um, assuming that that sort of throws it in with that kind of um, Tolkien-esque um, kind of um, thinking about the past is that Wendell is not so much thinking, uh, how do we return to the past, but how do we remember what's true um, about what we've, about what we've learned and that the, the willingness to ignore membership with the place and the other people that are in the place is a kind of forgetfulness um and of course, that I think that's also part of the human sickness is to forget that we need other people, and we're uh, and we need the places we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, in. In my mind, the idea of going to heaven at all, and I think N.T. Wright is. I feel like I'm echoing N.T. Wright. This idea we're we're here to escape this place. Uh, means that ultimately we're not really members here. We're just visiting. Mm-hmm. And I think Jaber Crow uh, is a, is a story. I mean, Jaber even says that in his, when he's at the seminary <clears throat> and he's thinking about, and he's asking these questions, you know, what is it about this world that we're supposed to hate it so much that all we want to do is leave? Yeah. I, uh, when we got out to Idaho, uh, Vanjie and I got to Idaho, and and wonderful. There were some really wonderful people out there. I don't criticize them at all. Um, there were some that weren't so wonderful, but there were some wonderful folks there. Um, it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. The mountains and the deserts and the rivers, and we would drive for hours out there and just be stunned every time we came around the corner. 
And then we go to church and all anybody could talk about is how they couldn't wait to go to heaven. And I'm thinking, this is so beautiful. <laughs> Why do you want to leave? <laughs> we were created for here. And I think Barry gets that. Um, so I don't see him as trying to, is, is, is thinking about going back to the past so much as remembering. And, um, and, and I, and I think he's also got a more realistic view of what happened in the past than people give him credit for. And, and of course, part of this is that it, I, I don't think you can leave out the agricultural aspect to it, but, but his appreciation for, uh, for a piece of land or, or uh, growing things, that in some way that the, the farm, I think, is an integral part of the whole peaceableness of Barry. And in fact, you know, there's always that link between peacemaking and peacemaking with people, but peacemaking with the land. And I think that's there in Barry, that the, the two in some way cannot be separated. Well, no. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they can't be. Um, this is, these are lessons that I have only, started to learn myself um, in the past few years. It, the idea of being tied to the land and enjoying the created, the creation. Um, the ideas I've had about Christianity have all sort of, have all sort of been about uh, trying to escape um, from here yeah. and I've I've started to in, in my thinking largely because of Barry and I think because of uh, of others as well but um, have been more about um, an acknowledgement of that I mean we're made of dirt according to the stories you know I I, I don't think that there's I don't think that's accidental mm-hmm. that um and, and this, I think, you also can get from Lewis and Tolkien, an appreciation for Mother Earth. Um, and, and that may be, uh, um, that may be tied in with ancient in, um, British paganism. But the, the idea that, that we are one with the land itself and, we are tied to it. We depend on it. We can't live without it. The dirt and the, and the things that grow in the dirt and the things that eat the things that grow in the dirt. We're all, we're part of this. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think, um, to forget that that's the created order is, is to forget something that God set and and that that and to forget that that was his intention, he intended it to be this way. You know, when I when I was a child, I think I became a Christian when I was thirteen, and we were in Texas. And Texas is not necessarily the most beautiful place, but I, I think just instinctively uh, that what you're describing uh, hit me that that is that. Uh, loving God and loving his creation 
uh, just seemed the natural thing to me before I was naive and unsophisticated enough to realize that what I should want was to die and go to heaven or something. And so, uh, in, in a sense, the, the uh, you know, it took a long, long years of training to displace, I think, and of course I'm being ironic, I think to displace what in fact was, in some ways, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was a sort of pagan or heretical longing, because partly I think what I was doing was imagining the the fellowship with God and creation as in some way, I, I didn't have a fully developed appreciation for the church or for ecclesiology. But it's almost like we we have to make a choice, you know, that uh, then as I became more inducted into a particular theological understanding, I think I, I lost room for a theology of creation until, and that came to me very late. Um, and so this is something, I don't know, Barry, I know, never claims to be a theologian, but of course he's doing the theologian's task of describing then the integral uh, connectedness of uh, the creator and the creation, and that you can't hate the creation and have an appreciation for the creator. Well, in, in my mind, one of the, you know, the story of the fall in Genesis, um, in, in the, the, the kind of uh, theological framework that I grew up in, the story of the fall is that there's some sort of mystical sin that offended God that, that, that uh, sort of made everything, uh, sort of messed everything up. Um, when you read the story, um, there is an idyllic sort of um, framework to what's happening in this garden in Genesis 1 and 2, um, what kind of world that, that uh, these people live in. And then there is this moment when they eat the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And your, your article that came out today, I, I think, hit on this uh, very carefully um that um you know what what that meant and and what that refers to but in genesis 3 there's a very powerful sort of conversation that happens and the uh and the moses uh you know moses being the traditional the one in who tradition says has written this sort of articulates this this kind of lecture that comes from God and there's a brokenness. I think Bonhoeffer is the one who really has explained this to me really well is that, yeah, there's, um, yeah, here, here's the, the relationship you have with yourself. Now, what a mess this is. Uh-huh. And now here's the relationship you have with each other. Now you're, you're going to desire him, but he's going to rule over you. Uh-huh. Um, that's fallenness. This is about power, relationship being about power. And then he takes a moment, and I don't think that, that in, my, in my own experience anybody ever pointed this out in talking about the relationship of creation and people, that 
the relate the the way the the picture was was painted in the earlier parts of the of the creation fall narrative um humans were made to be in this garden and the garden was made for the humans there's a relationship and the garden provides and the people tend uh-huh. they tended the garden uh-huh. they had work to do but they didn't have to work to survive. The garden provided. There was work to do. And it's occurred to me in my years as an adult, there's a huge difference between having to work and having work to do. That having work to do is a good thing. It's a purpose. There's meaning in being there and having work to do. Having to work to survive means you're a slave. Uh-huh. And in the Genesis chapter 3, he turns to the man, the woman, and he says, look, your, he turns to the woman and says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. That's picture one of what's gone wrong. And then he turns and says to the woman, things aren't going to be easy for you. Labor is going – he mentions labor. Uh-huh. Um, the phys- in my mind, this is not a punishment of women. This is a statement about the physical, the body. Things have changed. Our relationship with our own bodies uh-huh. has changed. And he turns and he says, the land will no longer produce for you. It's by the sweat of your brow that you will survive. I think what he's talking about here is the relationship we have with nature has will has changed significantly, and in just like every other relationship, it becomes a power kind of relationship. And um, you know, so the the, the language of um, uh, pursuing or um, uh, ruling over creation would mean something very different pre-fall than it means post-fall. Um, I may be just uh, rambling at this well, point. I, yeah, you have to stop me. Let me take it a step further. The, it could be, you know, and this was sort of, my, I didn't mention this in the article, but um, that, you know, what is the image bearing that takes place well, it, it, it seems that the, the, just the very nature of the way that man is created, taken from the earth, and that he's immediately thrust into this, the garden. And that is that the environment of the garden, the garden itself, is an extension then of who he is. That you can't, you know, you can't, uh, that being cast out of the garden uh, of course, they're not cast off of the earth, but they're cast out of this uh, the na- the sort of work that they were given to do is uh, is going to be uh, accentuated in its hardness. That it may be then that the very nature of who we are is then uh, to be found in the places uh, on the earth that were given work to do. Uh, that is that our image bearing is very much interconnected 
and our salvation of that image bearing is very much connected with the recreation of cosmic recreation. And yeah, I, you know, when you think, what is, you know, what does that look like worked out prior to the resurrection? Um, and, you know, every time I think about what it means to be a Christian, it's, it has something to do with living out the peaceful kingdom of God um, in a place that is not that does not recognize it. So I'm always kind of running back to Philippians chapter two, um, you know, the or uh, or First Corinthians one, where you're dealing with the um, the 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 cross is foolishness. This stuff is foolishness to the world. Now the world can't can't fathom what it is to live in a world like what Adam and Eve in the story of Genesis one through three experience where the garden provides and there, and, and um, you just, you work and you tend and, and there is no need for the pursuit of more. Um, it, it just provides um, because there's no death. Uh, death is is not something that's part of the picture, not something that's part of the of the the worldview. The world we live in uh, uh, is one where you've got this finite amount of time. There's a finite amount of resources. I've heard you you say this. I've read you uh, in some of your writings talk about this. There's a finite amount of resources, and so existence itself is a kind of a struggle to hoard these resources to extend life in such a way that, that you're we're in competition with each other. Uh-huh. And so, you know, what Barry I think has, is noticing is the way that the, the farming, the world of agriculture has been affected by a growth uh, of hypercapitalistic growth economy that says you have to continue to get more and more and more and more. Now, it may on the surface, I think, look like he's saying, you know, back in the day, we weren't concerned with getting our neighbor's farm. I think, you know, when you read um, Memory of Old Jack, even Jack tries to go and get his neighbor's farm and then realizes this is nothing but destruction. Um, the lesson is to learn to be satisfied with – what the land provides you. Um, what is, what is, you know, I think Jack's uh, experience in that story, Jack tries to, he wants to grow. He's, he's in a very unhappy marriage. He wants to grow. He tries to buy this farm. He ends up getting in debt. And then, of course, the debt, uh, it, what Jack realizes, he's become a slave to the, the farm that he's tried to purchase and he regrets ever having done it. So he can't pay it off and sell it fast enough. Um, and everything he, breaks down. It's, it, the way that Barry does that's very interesting that he's sort of goaded in to the, the acquisition because what he's actually trying to do is, is acquire the love of his wife. Exactly. Yeah. Who in some way is always disappointed in him. Because he's just a farmer, uh, right? And so, what she wants is, uh, you know, a, a landholder, a manager, a guy who sits on the horse and 
oversees the labor. Instead, what she has is a guy who, who is, you know, it puts his hands in the places that, you know, uh, you don't want to talk about. And so that he's actually, the, it, it's a great image there that the acquisition of the land is a means of him really acquiring the affection of his wife. And and the laborer there that he has, I can't, what's the guy that she, he's working with, uh, <laughs> who is the, uh, you know, kind of the black tenement farmer. They actually have this kind of uh, symbiotic relationship. Right. Uh, that is, is the one good thing in Jack's life, but he doesn't recognize it. Right. Until they get into a fight, you know, he, he because he's acquired this land and, uh, they they actually end up in in a in a fight, and of course uh, that ends the relationship. And so it's like all of this comes crashing down upon him that he loses what he had in trying to acquire and obtain uh, that which would always escape him. There would never there would never be a way of acquiring that thing, you know, whether it's the affection of his wife or the love of his wife or enough land. He can never get enough land that uh, he would obtain the thing, the object of his desire. You know, it's not clear that he ever can articulate, even by the end of the story, what it was he desired in the first place. All he remembers and is finding satisfaction in his work. And I think that uh, that what Wendell Berry draws a lot on is Solomon. Um, and, you know, Ecclesiastes is a, um, you know, Solomon ha- has all this wealth. He has all these things. He has everything that a person like Jack could ever want. And what does Solomon conclude? Well, the best thing you could possibly do is learn how to be satisfied working. If you can be satisfied with work, then that's really that's really the end of the story. And mm-hmm. and to love to love God and to find satisfaction in what you do. Um you know, the world I live in and I, and I'm constantly wrestling with this. I'm constantly I'm constantly trying to figure out how am I going to finally get to the point where I can have the things I want? Um, and it, it, it gets depressing. I mean, and it seems to me like what scripture is always trying to say is, do you enjoy what you do? Maybe that's what you're supposed to have. Maybe that's what this whole thing's been about in the first place to learn how to enjoy what you do and enjoy the people you're around and enjoy the place you're in. And that's my, that's sort of my interpretation of the Sabbath that the writer of Hebrews talks about as a continual Sabbath that, you know, with everything, as everything else has changed up, if you think of the fall as really a a failure to, to enter in or, or, you know, live in God's redemptive presence, and then what redemption is offered is that, you know, the writer of Hebrews describes it as entering into the Sabbath rest of God. Well, what is it that you're resting from? Well, again, it's not, you know, it's not that, oh, on the seventh day, 
God was tired and needed to rest up. It's that he ceased one kind of activity, the creative activity, and he begins redemption activity. And so I think it's it's true that as we enter into the rest of God, that it's no longer for our own survival that we should be working and striving. But in some way, the work then is itself redeeming and redemptive as we enter into that Sabbath rest, in which it's not, you know, in, in a sense, our own survival, you know, that it may be the same work, I'm not saying that, but the, the reason, the impetus for the work uh, in, in a Sabbath understanding uh, is that you're in some way relieved of the burden of uh, finding life for yourself. Uh, you've given up on that struggle. I, 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 I'm not sure I, that you can say it better, better than that. Oh, I um, said it that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think John Walton's book on the Lost World, Genesis One, uh, the way John Walton talks about the 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 rest. Um, I think is is very is brilliant. Uh, yeah, it, you know the idea that God sort of runs out of energy and is is tired at the end of that story is uh, is pretty crude. That's not. I don't think that's what we're meant to read there. Uh-huh. But the way John Walton talks about that is that well, um, okay, so you've here has God has created. And now, don't think about it in terms of now he's resting. Now he is seated at the throne, mm-hmm. and now he begins ruling. Um, and so the 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 goal, what God, you know, it, 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 in John Walton's view, Genesis one is a um, cosmic temple narrative, and at at as he has set. Everything, everything has its purpose. Now God, it rules. Now He is, He rules and things go as they are meant to go. Everything does what it is meant to do. Well, what things are meant to do, what creation is meant to do is be creation. So, you know, Vanjie and I sit outside, um, almost, you know, nearly every evening. What I try to do is run home from work so that we can sit outside and watch the birds and watch the rabbits and the squirrels. These creatures just come and do what they do. You know, they, we have these hummingbirds that it's, they couldn't make uh, the movie top gun any more exciting than what these hummingbirds live. They just, they chase each other around and they, they fight over the, the the nectar and the hummingbird feeder. I don't know why they do this. There's plenty of nectar for both of them, and yet this is what they do. This is their the world they live in. They they sort of you, know, you you we watch these creatures and they are just doing what they do. And and in my mind, you know, if you're going to live, I could I could try to go get another job or try to keep working and working and working. I've got plenty of work to do, but if you're not stopping and, and enjoying what's here, um, 
in my mind, watching the Cardinals and the Towhees and the Titmice and the, the Woodpeckers that come is as much about appreciating God being on his throne as when I sing worship songs and read the Bible with people mm-hmm. um, because these creatures, I think, recognize better than most people I know that God is on his throne and he is and he rules and he reigns. They are living out that Sabbath idea. Um, I think um, Solomon said, or was it Solomon or was Jesus? You know, look at the lilies of the field. They don't labor or spin. And yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed like one of these or look at the the sparrows they don't they don't work mm-hmm. and yet god god notices when one of them falls from the sky he doesn't say that they're not going to fall from the sky he just says god knows it if you uh the the thing that solomon does in the song of solomon you know the song of solomon is is a uh, as much about uh, a garden as it is about a love relationship. Right. And in that, there are times when you you lose track of what we're talking about because he'll be using metaphors, you know, pomegranates and sheep and goats, and he's actually referring to, to, you know, to his lover or her lover. And, but then other times they're describing the lover, and then it fades into a kind of uh, a beauty and love for Jerusalem and the, the garden that they're a part of, so that the love relationship that they share, which in some way, you know, and the, the, the flame of Yahweh is pictured as at the heart of that relationship, is one that is not, it, it is an interpersonal relationship, that extends, though, to uh, the, 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 the creation itself, to Jerusalem, to the environs in which the, the love relationship occurs. And so I think, too, that the Sabbath rest, the entry into this promised rest, and of course the promised rest was at one time the, the promised land, but maybe there is the sense that the promised land is just that place that we are in which we find the rest of God. Oh, and what if the promised land of Palestine wasn't really as important that it was Palestine in so much as it wasn't Egypt? Um, it wasn't slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know the time you know I, I, that may be a bit of a contradiction in in talking about terms of place i mean it certainly is tied we are tied to place but i was thinking about uh, your blog that um, you know before uh, plowshares got started you were writing uh walking truth uh-huh. and um initially that started out as a series of reflections that you had while you and Faith were out hiking or exploring. And um, and it struck me even then when you first started writing that, that 
you know, you're, you're tying your experience not just with the thinking that you're doing, but with the places in which you're doing it and the person you happen to be with, uh-huh. um, that, that those things are tied together. So, uh, of course, the writer of Song Solomon um, can't think about his lover or her lover um, apart from the setting that they're in and the world they live in and the things that they see and the other things that they experience and the food that they eat. Um, I used to teach Old Testament survey, and when I would talk about Song of Solomon, I would just look at my students and say, once you read this, you'll never look at pomegranates the same way again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. but here is – I mean how, how – it's not strange to think about the food that we eat sensually. Mm-hmm. That's not wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's who we are. That there's an unabashed eroticism uh, in 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 the Song of Solomon that I think is a true eroticism. In other words, I think there's the kind of false pornographic idolatrous uh, eroticism uh, that in fact ends up not being sexual at all. So what's happening in the Song of Solomon is that this, uh, I think, a healthy, uh, 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 I don't know how else to say it, you know, that the the that the erotic then is an extension uh, in uh, of understanding that's applied to the entire situation in which they find themselves. Is that too much? No, I think I, 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 yeah, I think it says it. I think it says it exactly. You know what I what I was hoping to try to get across that there's no, there's no separation. Um, what what your the eroticism of of Song of Solomon is is properly situated in its place. Um, and the uh, as I was. As I've kind of grown up, um, the world I've grown up in has had one of two sort of um, attitudes about sexuality. And one is this sort of immersive, um, pornographic kind of attitude. And the other is this prudish sort of attitude. Well, Song of Solomon... I think flies in the face of both of those. Um, it's not. It's not just this sort of raw animal sexuality that's kind of happening. Um, and yet, there's it, it, the prude. I think it fi- has to find Song of Solomon terribly uncomfortable. Um, which is why I think there's such an emphasis on trying to read Song Som- Song of Solomon as a uh, as an allegory for something else. Um, uh-huh. I mean, it is it is clearly about sexuality, and yet it places it in a specific context, but not this sort of fifties morality, um, uh-huh. you know, fifties television uh, focus on the family kind of morality. I mean, keeping in mind that if this is uh, supposed to be autobiographic, where we may be on wife five hundred. For Solomon, 
Um, not yeah. that I would recommend anything like that for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a healthy situation. But. Which, uh, you know, uh, kind of off, off topic, but back on topic. And that I'm always surprised at Wendell Berry's ability to write in the mode that he captures the feminine voice and feminine perspective. At least uh, it seems to me that he does. He's able to do that quite effectively. And so in the, in the relationship he, ships he de- describes, uh, that there's an element of authenticity there that uh, you, you don't get in a kind of cheap, literature no um as a matter of fact hannah Col- the book hannah coulter um uh, several people i know that are wendell berry readers have have told me that hannah coulter is their favorite hannah coulter is written from the perspective of Han- hannah who is a widow and um is remarried and uh, tells her her whole story um now, my wife, I, I was surprised uh, a couple weeks ago when we sent you the, the book, um, uh, Memory of Old Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was telling Vanjie that I had, I had sent you that, and um, I was afraid she would say, hey, I, you know, I really, Hannah Coulter is my favorite. She said, well, Memory of Old Jack is my favorite, very much for the reasons we're talking about here because mm-hmm. of the – the, the way the story is situated is sort of very realistic, a lot of pain involved. There's a lot of pain in all of his books. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought it would be Hannah Coulter. Um, Hannah Coulter has always made me uncomfortable <laughs> because it's so convincingly written from the perspective of a woman. And yet whenever I hear Wendell Berry, I hear his – I read Wendell Berry. I, I hear his deep voice telling me the story. He's a very deep, uh-huh. slow draw. And um, every time I read it, I, I, I read her her words, but I read it in his voice, and it's almost uh, <laughs> it, it's hurting, huh? It's almost off-putting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's it is so well written. I it one. One wonders how somebody could be that quite that talented. I, I've I've never been able to put myself in another person's shoes to 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 think uh, their thoughts that well, mm-hmm. and um, that's a great example of it. And of course, the the I think with the memory, I think the point of the, the, the you sent me. Well, you tell me the point. Tell me why you sent me Memory of Old Jack. Well, I think Memory of Old Jack is sort of the quintessential example of why I don't think that what Wendell Berry is doing is a sort of um, return to Eden kind of thing. I I, I don't think Wendell Berry uh, harbors any misconceptions that there's some magical uh, aspect of the past that if we could just get back to that. Then things would be good. I mean, there's when, his books. There, there is no no question that um, World War One and World War Two, and for that matter, even the Civil War, the American Civil War, um, have had uh, a terrible impact on the world. Um, there, and there isn't any any glossing over of the Depression or of uh, of um, 
of any of these things. I don't think Wendell Berry thinks that, you know, early 19th or mid 19th century, late 19th century um, rural America is this sort of idyllic place. Instead, what I think Wendell is noticing is that there is a, there is a truth that we tend to forget in trying to pursue more in um, trying to have our neighbors farm in, um, in our uh, materialism and in our capitalism. And we forget one another and we forget our neighbor. We forget the places we're in. And if we don't remember place, if we don't pay attention to the world the, that we live in, the towns that we live in, the land we live on, the people who are our neighbors, we will continue to destroy ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, this, I think, is ultimately what, what Wendell Berry is getting at. I, I came in to do this podcast. We had a group of us all gathered tonight uh, or this afternoon to work in the garden and exhausted ourselves planting, you know, watermelon, uh, uh, tomatoes and zucchini and squash. And we've got, we've got a huge little, uh, a huge garden, a huge little garden. It's not <laughs> by, by, Oh, I'm jealous when I see the pictures. (laughs) And uh, and so I think that in any intentional sort of community, uh, that what you're describing, what Barry is describing, is that we have to find this work uh, to to do together. And that, in fact, is the basis of uh, a community of relationships. Yes, doing work together. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm really glad we had it. Um, and I'm I'm very glad that you have enjoyed Wonderberry, um, who's been uh, a constant friend for me the past seven or eight years or so. I thank you for introducing me.